Hello, this is Leslie Garpa-Tenzer, and this is A Lot of Fact. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Luke Norris of the University of Richmond about employment law and labor law. In this episode, I'm speaking with Professor Norris, an associate professor of law at the University of Richmond, about employment law and labor law. But the discussion is much bigger than that, because we get into this idea of what students should think about when they're taking upper level classes after their 1L year. It's a really interesting and helpful discussion, particularly for those of you who are about to register for courses for the coming years, and for those of you who are entering practice. Here's my discussion with Professor Norris. I hope you enjoy it. All right, thank you so much. I am so excited to have you here. And I, I came to you by way of a, now there's a lot of fact listeners, so which makes it even more exciting for me, but I really appreciate it. And I appreciate what we're talking about today because a lot of 1Ls, the world is now their oyster. They've been told what they have to take and now they get to choose. And I know that labor law and employment law, two laws, two classes you teach are really popular. And I'm wondering, could you make the case for taking one, the other, or both? Sure. So um, I, I obviously I'm biased, but I think they're both uh, great courses. Um, I think they're very different, but they're really enriching. So labor law actually isn't taught at every law school nowadays because uh, fewer workers are unionized than they used to be. Um, union density levels, which is the union uh, unionization rate, are at about 10 percent in the country. Um, but it used to be. Do you know? Uh, it, oh goodness! It, it used to be 30, 40 percent, wow. um, and it, it's it's been a pretty precipitous decline in private sector unionization. Um, but labor law is also really exciting right now for budding lawyers um, because it's an area where there's a lot of reform. So first, just as a baseline level, labor law is about your collective rights as a worker. And you can think about that in two ways. One is um, your right to engage in concerted activity for mutual aid and protection um, with other workers, um, even if you're not unionized or thinking about unionizing. Um, so there's a foundational uh, case, Washington aluminum where uh, workers come in, um, it's freezing. They had been complaining about the conditions uh, in the workplace. The foreman says you all ought to go home and they all walk out together and go home um, and then they get fired. Um, and the um, uh, um, uh, they're reinstated because they were engaging in concerted activity for mutual aid and protection. So one thing about labor law a lot of law students don't know is the things you do together um, um, the very same things, if you did them on your own, you might be able to get fired for. <laughs> yeah, and, right? that, and that's my question, because I don't know that much about this, but as you're talking about it, it's so interesting. You don't have to be a union if you do it all together. That's right. right? So, so Section 7, which is the cornerstone of the National Labor Relations Act, uh, protects obviously your right to form a union, to bargain once you've got that union, but it also protects your right to engage in concerted activities for mutual aid and protection. And depending on um, um, which, uh, so the National Labor Relations Board uh, is a five-member board and it tends to go with the presidency, depending on which party holds the presidency, Sometimes even something you say on your own in a group setting, right? If you complain about something, um, so there, there was a case uh, under the Clinton board where a worker complained about the new vacation policy and was protected from being fired because that worker, they said, was trying to uh, spark uh, concerted activity for mutual aid and protection. 
so if you, so I'm, I'm, if I have a personal beef with my employer and I just say, well, I'm trying to gather a group for a concerted effort, is that going to protect me? Or, or do they have to prove that, I guess, in court? If, if your personal beef um, goes to the stuff that your other coworkers might have oh. personal beef about. So if it's about your wages, your hours, vacation policy, uh, and the like. So that's one part of, um, of labor law. And then another part is, of course, that process of what it means to form a union, what protections you have, what protections uh, the employer has. Um, so, you know, the union elections, the NLRB oversees, federal agency oversees union elections. Um, and again, this is a really interesting area right now because, uh, especially for younglers, we're seeing a ton of efforts for labor law reform. So, for example, right now, if you're trying to form a union, um, your employer can ask the NLRB to oversee an election. One area of reform is just saying, well, if you all sign cards uh, saying that you want to join a union, you, you ought to have a union and the employer ought to be able uh, to, uh, ought to have an obligation to bargain with you. That's card check legislation. But there's a big piece of legislation right now called the PRO Act um, that really would restructure what it means for uh, workers to be able to uh, form a union. So for example, right now, your employer can hold what's called a captive audience meeting. So you're, uh, you're trying to form a union and they can say on work time, everyone come, uh, you know, to the company auditorium, uh, and we're going to tell you, or more likely, we're going to hire consultants to tell you why you shouldn't form a union. Uh, and you've got to sit there and listen to that meeting, right? The union doesn't have the opportunity to get equal time to tell you why you should form a union, right? right? You're, it's company property, uh, uh, so, so goes the logic. So the PRO Act would change that. It would say, no, this is, this is look, it's the worker's choice, and, and they don't have to sit there at a captive audience meeting uh, and listen um, uh, to uh, these meetings. Um, it would also, when employers commit what are called unfair labor practices during union organizing drives, so let's say you've got two folks who are really strong union organizers, and they decide to fire those two, um, they would, uh, right now, those folks can get reinstated, but sometimes it takes 500, 600 days, um, um, and they just get back pay. Um, so the PRO Act would uh, allow uh, the NLRB to assess penalties on employers. So one thing about labor law is it's about collective action, right? And it's an area that's seen a decline, but suddenly it's getting popular again. So Meghan Markle in the interview with Oprah uh, just a couple days ago said that when she went to the firm, to the Royals, uh, she said, I used to be in a union. I thought they'd protect me. I, I, I just heard that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess that said, I thought of myself that I couldn't listen to it, but yeah. yeah. And I, I just saw a Vice article right before we started chatting, uh, essentially saying that unions are cool again, right? <laughs> um, um, and we're seeing, there was just a really interesting New Yorker article about the new faces of the labor union, uh, labor movement. So right? yeah. 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 But so, I didn't realize, and I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, just a couple of questions. One is, I didn't realize, I mean, I know, you know, I remember the song, Look for the Union Label, you know, you're probably too young to remember that, but there's a whole thing with the AFC, whatever it is. Anyway, I didn't realize that unions had dropped so precipitously, and I'm assuming pretty quickly, right? Because they were pretty big in the 80s, would you say, or 90s? or And and so what? why did they drop? And um, was it a power thing for employers? Like, why do you think they dropped? There, so so it's it's been happening since the seventies, but really escalated uh, as 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 you cut on to you know since the eighties, and there are a lot of reasons. So so part of it is um, 
decline in the areas uh, where unions had footholds, right? Manufacturing, uh, more manufacturing was just sent overseas. Right. Um, uh, part of it also, though, was um, um, sort of splintering, the, the Republican Party becoming more um, uh, opposed to collective bargaining rights. Um, um, so when you had um, uh, a Republican controlling the presidency, the NLRB uh, was making decisions that made it more difficult for workers to unionize. Um, part of it was you know, the fault of unions themselves not keeping up with times, and part of it was employers, too, breaking the law. You know, firing folks who were union organizers and the like, knowing that, hey, they've committed an unfair labor practice mm -hmm. and the NLRB might find that they've done so, but deciding that it was it was worth. Um, so it, it's a complicated story with a lot of with a lot of forces. But I think part of why we're seeing labor law reform right now is that folks recognize that law and what law looks like matters. Right. So for young, you know. The, the folks drafting the PRO Act for young lawyers who, who want to join the NLRB um, and, and the like, um, uh, law can make it easier for workers to form a union or law can make it harder. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and, and, and they're definitely, you know, the power difference between the employer and the employee. I teach contract law and I think about the um, idea of arbitration and you have to have, you can only bring it as a class or you can't bring it. There's a case where you can't bring it as a class. And no one's going to bring a lawsuit against you know singular wireless by themselves. So, <laughs> that, that, that's, I, I, so what do you what are your odds? I'm going to I'm going to ask you something you probably didn't anticipate. Okay. What are your <laughs> odds that this will pass? Because I'm guessing it's got two years to pass at least. It, it depends what happens to the filibuster. Um, if if there's filibuster reform, it's got a decent chance of passing. Uh, if there's not, uh, I don't think I don't think you'll get 60 votes for it. So uh, it and, wouldn't and pass. That's interesting too. There's a good article about the filibuster today, but in a way, that's a power. I mean, it's not a labor law thing, but I, when I was reading this, I was thinking, you know, right? It used to be that if you wanted to do a filibuster, you had to talk for 24 hours or, or until right, right. dead, whatever. And now you just, like you said, you just have to have a card that says, I'm going to vote for the filibuster. So it's kind of similar, you know, <laughs> in a way. But anyway. Yeah. One thing that's really interesting uh, uh, for for especially for students, uh, it, so even if the PRO Act doesn't pass, because the NLRB doesn't engage in a lot of notice and comment rulemaking and moves mainly through adjudication, we're, even if the PRO Act doesn't pass, you're going to see uh, the Biden board coming to, uh, with similar cases, coming to opposite conclusions uh, of the Trump board. So for example, there are questions like, um, what happens if it's an, an individual employee speaking alone, but trying to inspire group action, right? Uh, under the Obama board, protection. Under the Trump board, no, there, there needed to be a little bit more of an impetus of group action. Um, Similarly, can employees use uh, uh, email to try to organize unions, right? Under the Obama board, the answer was yes. Under the Trump board, the answer was no. Uh, uh, and, and we might see that changing again. So, so the, because it's an agency that moves through adjudication more so than rulemaking, um, it's always interesting, especially when there's a change in the presidency to study labor but, law. I mean, that, that's another thing that, that I'm learning from you is that whoever's in power really has control of kind of the um, 
I'm, I forgot the word I'm looking for, but, 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 but the gist of what's going on in the labor movement. Yeah. yeah. So that, and I don't, you know, when I cast my vote for president, that's not one of the things I'm thinking about. <laughs> so, <laughs> but now I will. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> yeah. Note to self, figure out who's going to run the national labor board. Right. Um, <laughs> so that's interesting. That's really, and, and so now does that dovetail with employment law? Because you said not that many schools are teaching labor law. So I'm wondering, is there a merger there? Is it a separate course completely? What do you think? Yeah, so some some schools do a merger where, where it's often courses called either labor and employment law or work law uh, that dovetails with employment law. Um, uh, and but, but more law schools have just good old fashioned employment law, um, which I can I can talk about more if you want, but which is really about individual rights. Um, um, not always, right? So uh, sometimes workers uh, engage in class actions, right? They bring wage and over time wage and hour class actions, right? That's collective action. Um, um, you know, um, sometimes section seven rights when you're not unionized, right? That's, that's, I teach that in employment law too, um, um, because it matters. But employment law, because it covers a host of individual rights um, um, that we, we've seen um, sort of uh, uh, those areas of laws bubbling up and changing, uh, that tends to be taught more. I'm happy to make the pitch for that if, if you yeah, want. I, I would love the pitch for that. And if, if you had to choose, I mean, I, you know, it's like splitting the, the baby, but um, let me, let's hear about employment law. Why should I do employment law? So, so I, I sort of gave a preview. It's, it's more about individual rights. So part of it is what does at-will employment look like in the U.S., right? So uh, unlike um, the rest of the world, uh, in the U.S., you can be fired for any reason that doesn't violate the law, right? You don't have any good cause protection or anything like that. Um, so what does it mean to have at-will employment and, and maybe to try to get more protection above and beyond that? So if, if you have a contract that moves beyond at-will employment, right, you'll get protection for that. But also, you can't be fired, for example, in violation of public policy. So if your employer fires you for serving on a jury, or if your employer fires you because you refuse to commit a crime, or if your employer fires you because you were a whistleblower, um, then, well, they're, they're violating the law um, and you're protected. But also, employment law covers a whole host of other things. Wage and hour law, right? The minimum wage, uh, whether you're entitled to overtime law, your privacy rights as an employee, your free speech rights as an employee, um, your right to be free from sexual harassment. Um, and, and some employment law classes also deal with employment discrimination, but uh, employment discrimination is a huge area and that that tends to have its its own course as well. Oh, wow. That's, you know, I, as I said, I teach contracts law. And one of the one of the issues my students have trouble with is why would you what's the value of signing a contract with an employer if it's an at will contract? What are you getting out of the deal if you're basically saying that the, the employer can fire you at any moment? Um, and I get what you're getting is this agreement that they're going to pay you and you're going to show up and all of that stuff. So there is some value still to this notion of at will. Why do you think at will employment contracts are so popular, though? Because they really are. I mean, right. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah, they're they're absolutely popular. I, I think they're so popular because our, our legal framework allows them. 
Um, and um, um, if if you're not unionized, you don't have and you don't have a ton of bargaining power. You know, um, uh, it's it's hard to negotiate away from that, right? Um, so employers love them because uh, for essentially any non-discriminatory reason or reason that doesn't violate federal or state law, they can let you go, right? So it it keeps them more nimble. Um, there is an argument that it benefits workers too, right? Because um, uh, you know you you can also be more nimble and folks have a lot more jobs today uh, uh, and and the like. Um, but I think the counter argument is that, well, I, you know, most workers would like a little bit more job security, right? Uh, 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 to, to, to sort of, you know, have the employer to have to give more of a reason for firing them. Um, and then, of course, if they want to move on to another job. <laughs> you know, but you raise a really good point. I have kids that are in their um, early 30s. And I mean, my son has probably had four jobs already and that's, it's so different from, I've had the same job for 30 years, but um, so to your point, I never thought of that, that, you know, this job hopping, which is not something I recommend law students, but for <laughs> kind of the tech world, <laughs> um, it does free you up for job hopping. Because if you sign a five-year contract that you, you get the benefit of knowing they can't fire you, but they can always fire you for cause, even yeah. if, it, right? Even if, that's right. Um, yeah. So I'm getting the sense that labor law is the focus on group work activity. That's right. And employment law is the focus on individual working workers' rights. Yeah, exactly. And and again, there's some bleed over, right? Sometimes yeah. workers join together in class actions. Uh, it's much, as you said, it's much harder for them uh, to do. Uh, I think right now something like 60% of private sector workers are covered by arbitration clauses, mm-hmm. um, which means, oh, wow. yeah, 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 which which mean that um, they're not they're probably not going to get to see their right to a day in court, and they'll have to proceed in arbitration. And increasingly, those clauses um, ban class actions in court, but also ban you from engaging in uh, in arbitration, the form of class action. They are mass action together in arbitration. So you're really on your you know if you're really on your own if you want to bring that lawsuit. Now that's complicated because if you think that your employer didn't pay you um, $800 worth of overtime, right? Um, getting a lawyer to represent you on contingency when it's just you is much more difficult um, than uh, if you can band together uh, in a class action to do that. We are seeing, however, some some plaintiff side firms taking those individual arbitration cases and sort of overwhelming the system with them. Um, so we'll, we'll see what happens there. Um, by the way, there's an EPI report that uh, that that says that um, within the next few years, 80% of private sector workers will likely be covered by arbitration clauses. So a lot of employment law gives you the right to a day in court, right? right, um, right. Uh, you're you're not paid the overtime that that you're entitled to. You face sexual harassment. Um, um, uh, you're fired in a way that that violates uh, uh, federal or state law. Um, you know your right to a day in court is sort of part of your power. Uh, as an employee, and you, increasingly, it's it's a right to a day in, in arbitration, which looks very different than public adjudication in courts. You know, as a policy matter, it's interesting because I see employers who want to fire someone who isn't good, but they're older or they're pregnant or um, you know they're of a particular race, and many times employers feel they can't for fear of of the employees saying, well, you fired me because I was older, you fired me because I was pregnant. So I think there is, not that I'm so pro-employer, but there is this kind of balance there. 
you know, we're, we're, we always tend to think of the little guy, but there is there are some handcuffs for the employer, too, I think. Yeah, and I, I do think the doctrine gives the employer the ability to say that this was for a, a non-discriminatory, legitimate business reason. Um, but certainly, you know, there, there will be those concerns. Um, and, and really, even if you can get into court, right, um, um, nowadays with pleading standards, um, you know, the the employee the employee who's been terminated has to come forward with some meat on the bone right, right. Uh, to to get over the hurdle of, of Iqbal and Twombly if you're in federal court. So, um, uh, so so I I totally take your point, but you know I I, th I think employers have some <laughs> some resources and advantages. That is true. You can respectfully disagree. I guess I'm <laughs> advocate. What can I say? Um, I I will say this, you know, as I said at the very beginning, I do not, I'm not that schooled. I did take labor law actually when I was in law school, but I didn't remember much of it. And I don't know <laughs> much about employment law, but I do teach contract law. And I have to say that there are at least six or seven cases that I teach in 1L contract law that kind of reflect the different kind of doctrines that you are talking about. So yeah, do get a taste. The other thing that, that I think is really important, particularly for our listeners, is that, that your discussion today is a reminder that law school classes are kind of the most valuable way to learn about things you might have not otherwise learned about. There, I think there's a tendency today, I'm talking just for myself and my career services person will get annoyed with me, but to take the externship and, you know, and do all of those things. And, 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 and those are valuable, but they're at the expense of these kind of upper level classes that you get to choose. And, and I want to choose both your classes. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I, mean, yeah, I, I, I tell, it's interesting, you know, I, I, I'm the professor when students come to me and say, you know, I've just finished my one all year and I, I liked this before I came to law school. I really think I want to be X kind of lawyer. Um, I tell them that's great and and definitely make sure you take a couple of classes in that area um but you're here to learn and to see what your passions are you may like you may think boy i really like corporate law right uh, and i, and I want to be an m a lawyer um cool but you may take other classes and say oh i like this better um you know and i i always tell my students uh, an hour doing something you love in the law flies by. And now we're doing something you don't love can feel like 10 hours. <laughs> I'm so I, I encourage them to sort of treat a law school education kind of like a liberal arts education. You know, take as many classes as you can because you might really fall in love with something and that's going to make for such a more meaningful career uh, than just doing something that you either dislike or just kind of like. <laughs> and, and, you know, I am of the same camp. I almost, I would almost take another step further, which is you're never going to, if you go practice, let's say labor law, you'll never know, you'll never learn about family law, you'll never be exposed to it. So take everything you can, so that you that's your chance to kind of just absorb it and learn a little bit about it. I mean, at the end of the day, yes, we're lawyers who practice in a particular area, but we're lawyers, you know, right. and it's, it's like you read the newspaper, I my analogy is um, my Harry Potter analogy is muggles and wizards where, <laughs> you know, every, everyone else is a muggle, but once you're a lawyer, you're a wizard. And well, that's really, this has been really interesting, really helpful. Um, I loved learning about both areas of law. And I really hope students take away not just an understanding of these areas of the law, but an understanding of the passion that one brings to learning and learning. I mean, you're so passionate. I, I understand why you were recommended. I'm thrilled that you joined me. Thank you so much for taking your time and talking to me today. 
Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Um, um, and you're doing a great service to law students. This is a fantastic podcast. So Thank keep, you keep listening, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for the plug. Take care. Thanks so much. And that's my discussion with Professor Norris. Really interesting discussion. And I hope you have the takeaway if you're about to register for classes to take as many classes that interest you as are available. This is a chance for you to learn about things that you don't know about, things you may not realize you're passionate about, as Professor Norris says, or things you may never practice, but it's nice to have a background in. So hope you enjoyed it. Have a good day. We'll see you next time on Law of Fact.